Welcome to Motherhood Exposed. Join me, Zoe Cresswell, mum of two and a UK-trained midwife and doula, as I meet with an array of amazing women navigating life and motherhood. Since becoming a mum for the second time, after my own complex journey, I've become more and more aware that motherhood is so unique. There's no one story the same, and women need support now more than ever. I hope by allowing mothers to openly speak out, we can help to break the silence around many topics. We need to shout out that there is no normal, and that is something we need to embrace. Motherhood isn't always picture perfect, so let's bust some myths, realign expectations, and share the journey together. Hello, how are you all? Welcome to another episode of Motherhood Exposed. I'm so happy to have you here. Today, I talk to a fellow midwife, Sophie Martin or you may know her from Instagram as the infertile midwife. Sophie shares her story of infertility, IVF, and giving birth too early to her darling twin boys, Wilfred and Cecil. Infertility and baby loss are never, ever easy, but to have a job, which Sophie continues to love, where she is reminded daily of her own journey, shows what incredible strength, courage, and passion she has. I hope you enjoy the episode. So, hi Sophie, how are you? Hi Zoe, lovely to see you. I'm really well. How are you? Yeah, we're good, thank you. And um, welcome to the first day of lockdown 2.0, I think, for you guys, isn't it? Yes, yeah, lockdown 2.0. Here we go again. Nice. How are you feeling? Well, how's the general feel in the UK? I think everyone is a bit fed up, to be honest. I know obviously Scotland and Wales have already been, and parts of Northern England have been in lockdown for a while but um, yeah. yeah I think with the lead up to Christmas it's uh, getting a bit tedious but obviously not much changes for me because I still have to go to work. So. No exactly and your husband he's home? Yeah so my husband runs a pub so that um, obviously it closed yesterday but he's there today kind of Just doing that. Yeah exactly tidying and sorting everything out and See how long this lockdown lasts. Oh, I hope only four weeks. I really, really do. We're, we're watching from this side of the pond and sending love. And <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? We'll see. As long as Christmas can happen, I think everyone will be relieved. Yeah, well, good old Boris seems to think he's going to get it all open up for Christmas. And it's just the businesses as well, isn't it? Um, yeah. Anyway, right. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Um, I always start the podcast with the same question, which is how did you meet um, your husband, which he's James, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So James and I met many moons ago when we were babies, age 19, um, at university. So before I trained to be a midwife, I did, um, I had another life. Um, no. uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so I went to university, age 19, to do a drama degree, um, and my husband, James, was doing English and drama, so we met on a night out in the Students' Union. Oh, wow. So history. you say um, when you were babies, you're still a baby in my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not since then, for sure. So, when, um, so you did a drama degree before doing midwifery degree? Yeah, so I did a drama degree and then finished that and did a master's. And I was halfway through my master's and I thought, do you know what? I just want to be a midwife. Wow. Um, yeah, so I finished my master's because I always have to finish things that you started. Um, 
and I'd already paid for it. So yeah. might as well finish. <laughs> um, so finished my master's. But at the same time as I was doing my master's, I started working as a maternity support worker. And mm-hmm. um, because after doing four years of degrees, I just really wanted to make sure that I definitely did want to be a midwife. Absolutely. Um, so started doing being maternity support worker at the same time as finishing my master's finished my master's and then I actually stayed as a maternity support worker for another two years and um, before I trained as a midwife really gosh so yeah. how old were you when you did your training oh gosh now I've got to do some maths um so I was 19 when I went to university so I was 21 22 25 okay. when I did my training yeah 25 I'm trying to do the math. So you're now, sorry, because we, um, so I should say that we briefly worked together back in London um, where you still work and I used to work. Um, I'm just, I'm trying to do the math, but I won't bother because it's um, way beyond me. I think we only crossed paths for a short while before I left. Yeah, I think I was an awesome maternity support worker, actually. Oh, that might make sense then. I see. Ah. Oh, well, congratulations for becoming a midwife. (laughs) it's all dawning on me very slowly here but um, I'm getting it okay cool um and you and James um when did you get married um we got married when I was still training to be a midwife so we we I finished my master's and we moved in together um and James was running a pub and I was being a maternity support worker and then um started my training and he proposed just after I started my training and we got married at the end of my second year. So that was in 2016. And yeah, it seems like a lifetime ago now. <laughs> and did you start trying for a family straight away? Not straight away. So I had one year left of my training. So we, um, I finished that. And then pretty much as soon as I qualified and um, I, we started trying for a baby only because I thought it would take, I didn't think it would happen kind of immediately. And, um, so I, yeah, I thought, well, not, not straight away, but like after a few months after mm-hmm. I started working as a midwife, I thought, oh, well, maybe we'll, um, maybe we'll give this a go. Like we'd wanted a baby for a really long time. Um, and obviously, you know, job security and all of those sorts of things. And we bought a flat and so we just, yeah. So then, then we started trying and here we are <laughs> still <Yeah>. trying. <laughs> so what happened in the, um, in the, those initial sort of few months I lost the plot, basically. Um, <laughs> Just to put it, put it simply. <laughs> in summary, I went completely balmy. Um, so we started trying and immediately, I, this is just me to a T, like I need to research everything to do with this. So there I was with the ovulation sticks and, um, you know, I knew my menstrual cycle and I was... I just was went full in of like we're going to have a baby so just re- you know read every single thing that I could find on how to have a baby and um, you know I was we had to have sex on certain days we like completely overhauled our diets and um, I threw everything that was plastic in our house away because I was like right we're going to have a baby and um, wow yeah and it didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I really was like a woman obsessed with having a baby okay and how how um and so that happened so how long did that go on for before you thought hold on this isn't this isn't you know something else is going on here 
Well, I am a very impatient person. So I would say after about <laughs> six months, I was like, why has this not happened? Which I'm sure most women do. You know, if yeah, it doesn't absolutely. happen, no, absolutely. Like, why has this not happened? And especially when you're being quite regimented about it as well, um, then I think that yeah, well, adds to it. I was, trying, I was trying to play it cool. Like in my <laughs> head, I was like, oh, I'm so chilled about this. Clearly not chilled. I've never been chilled in my entire life. Like I've never been chilled about anything. Um, so after about six months, I was getting really impatient. Like, why isn't this happening? Um, and in the back of my mind, I sort of knew something wasn't right. So when I was a very baby student doing my other degree, I'd, I had not been feeling quite right. And I'd had some blood tests done. And I saw an endocrinologist and they ran my AMH test, which mm-hmm. is anti-malarian hormone. And it came back really low. But I was probably like... 23 or something at the time so hadn't really no idea and this was before I was a midwife or anything like that so I had no idea what AMH was Um, and I was like and the endocrinologist has just said to me oh well just try and have a baby sooner rather than later and I thought she meant like before you're 30 because in my baby head 30 was quite old and so I was like of course I'm gonna have a baby before I you know before it's too late like what are you talking about you know I've met my husband, although we weren't married at the time, but I was like, yeah, of course, I'm not going to leave it too late to have a baby. God, don't be so silly. Um, So then after six months of trying, this suddenly in my head clicked of like, oh my God, I don't even know what AMH is, but this is not good. Um, So I went, my husband made us wait another few months and then I went to my GP straight away and I was like, no, like I've got low AMH, this not happening for us. Okay, and did you go straight to a fertility clinic from there? Um, so we went to our GP and the GP sat there and went, oh, don't worry, you're young. Of course, it will be fine. And I was like, how old would I have been? 27 or 28 with a very low AMH. Clearly, I didn't have all the time. Um, but she went, I don't even have a baby and I'm much older than you. And I just stared at her and I thought, thank you. But do we know what your AMH is? Yeah, not helpful. No. So um, she did a referral to our local um, gynecology department. So we had to wait months for an appointment and it kept getting cancelled and put back. And eventually James and I, James had to do a semen analysis, um, which came back fine. And we pootled along to our gynecology appointment in our Mm -hmm. local hospital Mm -hmm. and the doctor said oh yeah you've got a low AMH and my FSH was also high um and he just went but do you know what you need a laparoscopy just so we can have a look inside and I was like oh okay fine and but he went there's a nine month waiting list for a laparoscopy oh and the follow-up afterwards there's a nine month waiting list for that as well so it would be 18 months before I could even step foot in a fertility clinic. Um, oh and at that point, I just thought I can't cope with that. Um, so within about a month, we went to a private fertility clinic and started IVF. And once you go private, does that kind of negate you out of the NHS? You're not allowed to then sort of enter an NHS cycle at all? Um, in some areas you can, but actually what the gynaecologist just failed to tell me was that my AMH was so low that they never would have offered me NHS IVF in the first place anyway. Really? I would have gone through all of that 18 months no. of waiting, having a laparoscopy, and I never would have been eligible anyway. Oh. Um, so I'm so glad that I Wow, absolutely. I just couldn't wait. 
when you want a baby, you can't. No, you can't. You can't. Because I, I mean, I've had this conversation with other people. Like every, I mean, it's always so frustrating. You have to wait a month for your next period, let alone wait eighteen. I mean, that's that's just insane. I know. And when you want a baby, you want one now. I don't want one in three years time, even though I am still here three years later. But (laughs) you know, you want it. I wanted a baby like already a year before that. Yeah. And so waiting another eighteen months before I could even get an appointment at a fertility clinic. I mean, James and I were just so fortunate that we had managed to save up some money so we could afford around IVF. No, I know. But um, yeah. I, the, I mean, if we hadn't had that and I'd had to wait the 18 months, I don't know what I would have done because I was already at breaking point, it felt like. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's, it's very interesting because um, obviously I'm, I'm recording this in Dubai and sort of half our listeners are from Dubai or the UAE or, or around the world. So everybody obviously has different experiences, but here everything is private. So um, it's, it's private or nothing basically. So obviously we don't have that same kind of waiting game to kind of contend with. We just walk into a clinic and wait for our bodies to be ready to, to get going. So it's really interesting, shocking um, actually to hear that that is the amount of time you have to wait. That's in, insane. Is about the only word I can think of really to to summarise that. Um, so you you then started um, IVF with your private clinic straight away. Pretty much, yeah. So we'd we had our consultation and then we booked a holiday for like the next week. Um, yeah, and started IVF as soon as we got back from our holiday. And um, I guess in my head it was like, oh, we'll be one of those couples where we just went on holiday and relaxed and we were just about to start IVF. And obviously that didn't happen. (laughs) So yeah, we started IVF and I was doing a long protocol and I had just started um, as a community midwife at the time. So pretty much the first week that I started as a community midwife, I started, um, started taking medication for IVF as well. So it was quite intense kind of, a big week yeah exactly but luckily um my clinic was in my patch like where I was a community yeah. midwife so I would because um I'd go and do my scans first thing in the morning really early before before work and then I would just walk to my office or I would just go on my visits straight away so it was actually really convenient yeah. and I managed to hide it from well I thought I managed to hide it from all of my colleagues and things like that and was that a plan to keep it private? Did you tell anybody that you were going through IVF? Um, I told my team leader because obviously I needed like days off or, you know, if yeah. you know, I might be coming to work 10 minutes late or something. Yeah. Um, and then I, we told my parents and I think we told my husband's parents, but yeah, other than that, oh, we okay. kept it very much to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And how did that first round go? It was, um, oh, it was a real roller coaster. I mean, looking back now, having done many more rounds, I just feel like the beginning part of the whole journey, like the actual trying and going, you know, the despair was so much harder. But I was doing a long protocol, um, so which is, as it says, long, goes on forever. Um, so we, I started doing the down regulation injections and eventually started stimulating and nothing was growing and I was on really high doses of medication and and still nothing was growing and it was really disheartening because I remember saying to my husband we've missed the boat like we're not going to get any eggs 
you know it's going to be game over before we've even started yeah. I genuinely thought that um at that point I said to my husband we're like we're gonna to have to talk about doing donut eggs because my eggs aren't, aren't just aren't going to work um, and eventually after a few like I stimulated for quite a long time but eventually some eggs did start to grow but it was so incredibly stressful those few days you know going back to the clinic every other day having the bloods I mean that clinic they just weren't very good with their words so the nurses would be like oh oh yeah nothing's growing is it and I would just sat there feel devastated and then they're like I'll just come back in another few days and you'd come back and it would be like oh not much growth is there and it was just really disheartening to just feel like I was failing so badly at IVF then eventually we got to egg collection and actually that day was amazing I had my first ever sedation which I love (laughs) (laughs) and and the 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 clinic which I had my first round five years at was really fancy. So you had really lovely food. And when I woke <laughs> up, um, I was told I'd got seven eggs, oh, which for most people does not sound like a lot. But honestly, I had I had like three or four follicles growing. So to, so to get seven was the cherry on top of a really emotional day. Um, and then we went home and had a pizza. <laughs> Um, and then obviously you start waiting for the phone calls to tell you how your embryos are doing. So four fertilized, um, and then they were all still growing at day three. So I was feeling really positive at this point. And mm-hmm. um, and then day five came around, and we went in, and there was only one that was ready for transfer. So you were doing a, a fresh transfer. We were doing a fresh transfer. So one one was ready, and then one was very slightly slower. So. Um, we just put that one embryo back um, and then the next day actually they did manage to freeze the other embryo Brilliant. so okay. I felt okay at this point because we'd got one in the oven and one in the freezer <laughs> yeah. um, and so then was the start of the two-week wait which is just joyous so what did you have, tell me how did you pass that time how did you make it go by I went to work and um, I went to work straight after my transfer in that wow. afternoon um, put my rucksack on off I went pounding the streets of London um, and I just worked and it was such a good distraction to be honest mm-hmm. I well I say I barely thought about it obviously I analysed every twinge inside my body of which there were none um, and we only had to wait nine days which really is not very much at all compared to on other clinics but after nine days we did our pregnancy test and it was positive um, and we I woke up at about 2 a.m and made myself wait until about 5 a.m did the test and we were so exhausted that we just got straight back into bed and went back <laughs> to sleep it was really a weird moment because there wasn't loads of tears and yeah we were happy but we were so cautious and so exhausted by this point because the emotional toll it takes on you is is really hard so yeah we literally you know probably about five past five we were both back asleep again because we were so So tired from starting the IVF to getting a positive test what how how long was that six weeks I think okay because we did a long protocol so I think yeah six weeks so that's a long time of constantly injecting and taking medication and thinking basically about nothing else that's 
and and it's not even that it's like the whole build-up for you know a year or, or more before Absolutely. that yeah is just so exhausting yeah so can you tell us about that pregnancy how did it develop how did things go so had our pregnancy test and it was just it was actually really close to christmas so we couldn't have our first scan until january um, and so i went about working still and i remember one day i started bleeding not a lot it was only quite it was only barely anything to be honest mm-hmm. like brownie but I was really nervous so I called the early pregnancy unit when I work and I just explained like I work here but also yeah. you know pregnant and IVF can I have a scan so he said yeah come in tomorrow so I came in and I was five weeks and five days at this point and James my husband came with me so we went into the early pregnancy unit which I've never been to before and you have to do an internal scan at this mm-hmm. point. So yeah. I get undressed and the sonographer's scanning me. The screens, you, I can't see the screen. So she's scanning away. And we knew that we wouldn't see a heartbeat at this point anyway. Yeah. Scanning away. And she's, she was actually taking a really long time. And I didn't really know what to think. And she was, she looked like she was taking lots of measurements and kind of doing lots of things. And she was like, oh, was this a single embryo transfer? And we were like, yep. Yeah. Um, so she's scanning away, scanning away, and then she turns the screen round, um, and I saw it straight away. But um, she was like, "Oh, there's 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 two in there," um, which was absolutely insane because obviously having only no. put one embryo back, I just never thought that something like that would happen to me ever. I just thought, "Oh my goodness!" And James was still staring at the screen, and I was like, "It's twins." <laughs> catch up catch up (laughs) yeah he was so slow to kind of (laughs) understand but um so yeah we found out really early that it was twins and then two weeks later well I think we had a few more scans then obviously saw the heartbeat so yeah that was that was incredible because I never thought that something so magical would happen to us it's amazing And yeah, being, being a statistic um, girl, have you actually looked up the stats for that with an IVF pregnancy? I mean, it's more likely actually to happen with an IVF pregnancy than it is um, naturally, but it's still fairly uncommon, you know. It's incredible. I can't remember the exact stats, but um, also that what is unusual is that they, this is getting technical now, Zoe will appreciate this because she's, she's a midwife, but um, <laughs> they were actually um, DCDA twins from a single embryo so that for those yeah. people that are wives, they were so they were identical but they had their own sacs and their own placentas so if you didn't know that they had come from one embryo you might have thought that they were non-identical gosh so that was crazy yeah that really was, was yeah yeah but i was actually so relieved that they were dcda twins so obviously mm-hmm. this is the far, the, the least risky type of twins that you can have yeah. so i just felt like oh thank god for that imagine if they were monochorionic or something like that that would have been so stressful i was stressed enough as it was to be honest i bet you were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah that was eventful the first few weeks for sure and i had absolutely horrendous morning sickness oh no never felt so unwell in my entire life and being a midwife, you know, people tell me about morning sickness all the time. And in all honesty, I never appreciated how bad it could be. It was so debilitating. I, and I was so stupid. I went to work every day. I just really tried 
although I like moaned about it, I never really kind of let anyone see how uh, like how poorly I felt. I wouldn't take any of the anti-sickness medications. I just would walk around with a plastic carry bag <laughs> all the time. So you've, you've, got, you've got your Sonicade and your sit bag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I would go and do like a home visit and essentially I would just say to myself, like, you've just got to keep it inside for however long this visit's going to take. So I would do the visit and be like trying not to retch because I had a wow. real problem retching. Um, and I would just do the visit and I would like cough if I thought I needed to retch or something. Um, and then I'd go outside and then like be sick or whatever. It was <laughs> awful. <laughs> Basically kind of marking your territory around London. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was, yeah, I mean, it was so hard. And I also felt like I had to be really grateful because I was pregnant with twins and I'd been through so much to get there and all of a sudden I hated it. It was awful. And even after 12 weeks, it didn't go away. It went all the way until 18 weeks. Oh, that's so hard. Basically, nearly the entire time I was pregnant, um, it was just so, it was just really hard work. And no, it's it really hard. Yeah. I think um, I've had like mornings of fit, like if I've got a bug or something, feeling like really nauseous. And it just makes me think, oh my gosh, these poor women who have morning sickness it must like like you're saying so debilitating because you can't you can't do anything if you feel unwell if you feel sick you just well it's really hard yeah, well, to kind of get up and go and do a th- yeah it's awful I wouldn't go in the kitchen at all like just being in the kitchen would make me feel sick so James my husband so sweet he would come in from work because um, he runs a pub he would come in from work really late and then he would make me a marmite bagel which he would leave for me to have for breakfast and then he Aww. would make I know because I couldn't even go in the kitchen to do it um, and then he would make my lunch as well which would be other beige food um, <laughs> which I probably wouldn't eat anyway um, oh, no. and that for me because I couldn't go in the kitchen at all which was they must have been really hard going around people's homes then because everyone's house has a, their own smell and if they're cooking or they've just had their breakfast or something and you have and often I always found like postnatal ladies often they didn't open forgot to open windows and things it'd be quite stuffy indoors a lot of the time as well that must have been really difficult yeah I think everyone wants to keep the babies warm don't they so yeah they don't open windows. but to be honest smells weren't that bad for me it was I don't there was not really any triggers it was just feeling ill <laughs> just being in the kitchen my kitchen <laughs> was awful oh no good excuse for takeout maybe and then no, uh, you, you just couldn't eat at all no not really oh no um so you got to 18 weeks with sickness and then how did the um what happened after that so I, I was feeling like a bit better by 18 weeks I, I wasn't vomiting as much but I had just been so incredibly anxious throughout the whole pregnancy, even after we got to 12 weeks, I just really couldn't relax at all because I just really felt that something was going to go wrong because how, who has one round of IVF gets pregnant first time and it's identical twins. I just felt like that was too much good things to happen to us. Were you having your care at um, the hospital you work at? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, and I felt really ashamed to tell like my colleagues how bad I was feeling, like emotionally. Um, so I didn't tell anyone really. Like James knew that I was really struggling, but I didn't really tell anyone else. So 
we're just like peaceling along and I just kept and we didn't buy a single thing at all not a one single thing um and I just kept thinking oh once we get to viability 24 weeks I'll feel a bit better mm-hmm. so we um had our 20 oh no we had a earlier normally scan at 16 weeks I think and everything was fine and then we had another anomaly scan around 20 weeks and they found out that um Cecil one of the twins although we didn't didn't have names and we didn't know the genders but um he had talipes which is club foot on one of his feet which was a bit of a shock to be honest even though I know it's actually not that much of a big deal it did feel like a big deal I think because they were identical and then obviously one had a club foot yeah it's it was quite else. difficult to process yeah. and I didn't want him to be disadvantaged against his brother or like because they're identical a comparison between the two or so that just felt really I was quite shocked actually because we'd had so many scans up until this point and although I was expecting something to go wrong I didn't think it was going to be that so we were due to go back and see um the fetal medicine specialist a few like the next week to confirm that it was club foot and then to refer us to like the orthopedics and yeah. stuff like that but we actually never made it that far so I um started to bleed on the Wednesday and I think I think I was at work I can't remember um and I I actually didn't think too much of it because it wasn't very much and it was quite pink but I'm rhesus negative so um for those of you that are not midwives if you've got a negative blood group you just need if you're bleeding you need anti-d injections um, so I just thought, oh, crying out loud, now I'm going to have to go and have anti-D. <laughs> so I went into the hospital and they did a speculum and couldn't see anything. I've got a cervical erosion anyway, so they can often bleed. Mm-hmm. Everything looked fine. So they said, and it was the middle of the night because I'd have to wait a really long time. And they just said, oh, come back tomorrow for the anti-D because um, I was going into hospital for work anyway yeah and um, we'll see you tomorrow and I was going to have an antenatal checkup with my friend anyway so I went back the next day still bleeding had the anti-d went home again and then the next day I was off work and I was still bleeding and it's just still pink at this point yeah it was pink but it suddenly got a lot more watery and I thought to myself I think my waters have broken and I was feeling really not right as well. I felt I was in like pain and just really didn't feel very well. Yeah. And um, so I said to my husband, oh, we need to go back to the hospital. This is not right. So we drove back again um, and they did a speculum and they said that my cervix had started to open. So they said it looked like a cervix. So so if you, they said it looked like a multi-ips or so it looked like someone who'd had a baby before yeah. and I've never had a baby before. And I just sat there and thought, hmm, that's not ideal. And no. um, so they decided to admit me and it wasn't my waters. It was just like a funny discharge, like a pinky, weird discharge. They didn't know what it was. And they saw that I had a hematoma inside as well. So they kept me in overnight and essentially I started tightening. Um, but I didn't really realise that it was tightenings. So I was being woken up every five minutes. Nice. But yeah, I know. I'm so, such a wally. Like, it's so hard to think like a midwife 
when you're sat there as the patient. You're not meant to. That's not what you're meant to do. You're a midwife when you go to work. You're not a midwife when you're when you're pregnant with your own children. You see. Yeah. So I was sat. I was like awake every five minutes having these tightenings, but I was. I just didn't think that I was going to go into labour. I just thought, oh, well, I'll just be an inpatient on the antenatal ward for ages and well, for a few weeks, and then maybe they'll come when they're 24 or they'll be really early, but I'll just be sat here on the antenatal ward for a while. Um, and so contract, well, tightening all night, and then, but on and off. And then the next day, still tightening, but it was starting to get a bit more painful. But to be honest, I just didn't think that they were contractions. I just thought, oh, I'm in pain. Um, and I'd been in pain for quite a few weeks anyway, like hip pain and things like that. Yeah. So just was like, oh, okay, in pain, whatever. Kind of just trying to ignore it, I think. Um, and then my waters broke. And so obviously in that moment, I knew that it was the end. It was really horrible. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, and was James with you when that happened? No, um, my mum was with me she'd come to like visit me for the day and she was just about to go home but she could see that I was in loads of pain and I'm so glad she was there because it was like a massive gush of waters and James wasn't there and it was yeah I wouldn't say it was frightening I, no, was, I was gonna say that must have been really frightening that must have, it's, it's no, overwhelming I yeah I just knew that there it, you know it wasn't a trickle like the waters had fully broken yeah yeah it's gonna be the end so then they just took me around to labor ward um and before so i was in a side room on the antenatal ward obviously being a staff member staff member <laughs> yeah that's the perks it's got to be one <laughs> so perk isn't there <laughs> yeah exactly so i was in my own little room and the waters break and then they got the doctor who did a speculum and obviously the cervix was open so they said you need to go to labor ward and i just turned and probably shouted but I just said I don't want a single person to see me I just felt so embarrassed like I didn't want to be wheeled round on the bed having all of my colleagues looking at me even though I know that they wouldn't have been like looking in a horrible way I just didn't want them staring because I would have to look back I think Oh, Sophie. So, anyway, if you've ever been on a labour ward, they are noisy, busy places. <laughs> and the bereavement room is the furthest room away. So, they had to wheel me the whole way down, and it was like a ghost town. Not a single person was on the labour ward. They, everyone was in their rooms or in another, in their offices. And I was so thankful for that because, <laughs> sorry. It's okay. I guess I it's a little bit of kind of self-preservation. You just wanted privacy and to go into your own place maybe and not have to think about other people in any way or th what they were thinking of you. Perhaps you just needed to completely go into yourself um, to deal with what was coming next. Yeah, I just didn't want to have to look at their faces essentially or like think about anyone else's emotions, I think. Yeah, or yeah. yeah. Like, sense. like when you have to work with people, I don't know, it's really complicated. It's complicated, isn't it? You know, like. Yeah, because you're very, you're very vulnerable in that position. Um, and it's very strange for colleagues to see you in a very, in, in, in other jobs. And they don't see you in that very vulnerable, naked, often um, yeah. kind of 
uh, environment you know normally you're you could be suited and booted and you can be one person on one side of the door and another person on the other side of the door but when you're actually in your situation it's it's completely different yeah no I think oh like I'd worked there for quite a long time how long did I work there by then uh, like six years I'd worked there so obviously I knew everyone yeah and I think I have like quite um like a positive persona at work and you know I always try to like give the illusion that I'm quite calm and things like that so then I was probably yelling in pain and you know I just didn't want everyone to see me like that mm-hmm. and, and thankfully I didn't see anyone so then just went to the bereavement really and then by that time James got there and um, and I was just contracting you know really regularly so yeah so yeah that was that and was the labour quite fast being premature yeah yeah it was um, it was two hours for Cecil to be born um, and then another half an hour for Wilfred to be born and um, but I actually found the labour okay I think because I had something to focus on you know you've got to get through each contraction I didn't find it particularly painful and um, you know I had it was really intense but it wasn't like at no point did I think oh I can't do it yeah and I had gas and air and yeah I just knew it was going to be quick anyway so I just thought you know well you can't stop it it's a really funny I don't know for people I've never had any other experiences other than this but I knew that I just had you know I didn't have an option it wasn't going to stop so just had to go with it and I think I was actually quite thankful to have the contractions because then it didn't it meant I didn't have to think about the emotional yeah I think when you've got some something physical to focus on then you don't have to worry about the the emotional side of things um I know not not the same but with my own experiences when I've been dealing with long drawn out miscarriages that it was only when they were actually done and dusted that actually that's when the emotional side of it would kick in um because before that I could focus on the bleeding and how we retain products and all the rest of it and then later on, that's when I would get hit with the emotional side of, of what actually had happened. And so I, un- I understand um, to a degree what, what, what you're talking about, 100%. Yeah, I, I didn't cry like for ages. I just had to focus on what was happening. Um, and they were both breach um, and we didn't know what we were having. And I... Although we obviously knew they're identical, so we knew it was going to be two of something. Yeah. <laughs> and talipes are more common in boys, so I did have a suspicion that they might be boys. Um, and so I actually delivered them both myself. Um, like I was the first person, well, the only person that touched them, and that felt really positive for me to do that. So that was really nice. Um, and they were both born alive, which at the time I was quite shocked about. I just had assumed when the waters broke, I had in my head thought that they died then. Don't mm-hmm. know why. That, that make, makes no sense at all. But because I knew they were going to die, in my head that was the moment that they died. So then when they were both born alive, it was actually really special um, yeah. that we did get some time and got to hold them. And yeah, it was really lovely. You've just said really flippantly that you delivered, or you birthed your own babies and caught your own babies. You just said that like everybody can do that in that situation. That strength and the 
your bravery, bravery, that's a new word, to be able to do that is, is astounding. That's incredible. Um, I just wanted yeah. it to be my hands that touched them first, like not a hand in a glove. Yeah, yeah. Like I wanted it to be mine. To be yours, the mummy's touch. Yeah. It's amazing. So how, how long did you get to spend with the boys um, after they were born? Um, we are, well, at the time, they thought the reason I'd gone into labour was from an infection. Um, so I was like being pumped with antibiotics. We actually stayed in hospital for a few days. Um, so I had them on the Saturday and we didn't go home till the Monday. Um, so we had them like in and out of our room during did that you, time. Does, was there a cold cot? Were they, were they able to stay with you? Um, we didn't actually have the cold cot in our room, even though there is a cold cot. Um, we didn't we didn't have them on the cold court we i just wanted them like to go well i don't know it's really hard to explain this because obviously i do do it from a medical side but i wanted them to go back in the fridge because i knew that was better yeah than being cold court like i wanted yeah. i don't know maybe people listening thinks that sounds really cold to say that i wanted to preserve them as much as possible i, d- I don't think anyone would think that sounds and nobody can can give any opinions until they've been through it themselves and even then there's no opinion because it's your own experience and it's what's right for you as an individual and a family not not anybody else so um i understand completely what you're saying and you got home um how were the first few days kind of transitioning back yeah i mean it's obviously really strange coming home um and I had like low iron and was really dizzy and, you know, not feeling like 100% my best anyway. Yeah, physically really unwell as well then. Yeah, I was feeling, well, at the time, obviously, I didn't really let myself think that. But yeah, I was probably, yeah, not in a great shape. Um, so I did what any normal person does. And I got the ladders out and I started uh, cleaning the house from top to bottom, cleaning the blinds. I mean, I scrubbed every inch of that flat like you have never seen um it was the only thing i could think of doing i defrosted the freezer and <laughs> um, i honestly i just went to town on i just couldn't sit there and do nothing it was just awful um, and my parents were coming around to see us as well so my mum loves cleaning something i've inherited from her so the pair of us just absolutely you know blitzed and bleached every square inch of our of my flat because it was the only thing that we could do I don't know why I'm finding, I'm finding that more upsetting. <laughs> oh dear. But um, I think, sorry, there's something really beautiful about that. Just um, your mum, not, because I was going to say, did people try and stop you and make you sit down and, and relax and everything? But your mum, um, there's something really, just really beautiful that she just cracked on and, and put her gloves on as well and joined in and was just, th- just there with you, just, just with you. Um, if you needed her, she was right by your side. And um, that's, that's, really special sorry yeah I think you know it's a huge grief for everyone like my mum was there when they were born and obviously everyone was so excited that we were having twins so when that happened it was just devastating for everyone yeah um and I think as well perhaps and this is not wrong but perhaps they were frightened to leave me by myself as well so you know my mum and dad came around a lot and yeah I guess no one it's really hard like what do you all sit there and do be miserable yeah so let's just 
clean the house <laughs> again like it's just you cope however you need to cope you do what 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 gets you through yeah exactly and yeah, day no by one, day. even when I was up the top of the ladder <laughs> with like a low HB thing feeling really dizzy <laughs> they would be like are you sure you want to do that and I'd be like there with my marigolds like yes and then no one no one dared argue with me <laughs> They were just at the bottom, ready to catch, should they need to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so with um, Cecil and Wilfred, how, how, have, how have you moved forward? How, how, is, how have things progressed from, from having to say goodbye to them? Such a difficult question, because in some ways, I don't know if I have, like, I think about them all the time. Um, always really sad that they're not here. Yeah. So I don't really know the answer to that question, I guess. But I think James and I have been really clear that we do want to talk about them and that's been really helpful. So our family always talks about them and make sure they're included and that definitely has been really helpful for us. Yeah, yeah. That they're still part of the family and you're still mum and James is still dad and yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think just like being being able to talk about them or is yeah, like the the biggest gift that anyone could ever give us. Yes. Really hurtful when people kind of gloss over it or like don't acknowledge them as people I think that's really hurtful so when people either don't mention them or talk about it as like a pregnancy that ended rather than being two people that died yeah that is quite hurtful but mostly people because I think James and I have been fairly clear in setting the boundaries of what we want I think it's been quite easy for everyone else to kind of work around us and do you think being a midwife helped you know how to do that um I don't know I hadn't had like huge amounts of experience of bereavement care I mean obviously I had looked after family to bereave but I wasn't a bereavement midwife or anything like that but I do remember saying to James before they were born whilst I was in labor I was like James they're not going to look like babies don't be frightened and um, Obviously, they looked like babies, but I meant like they weren't yeah. going to yeah. look like a newborn fat yeah. babies. Yeah. Um, so I knew. I think I wasn't frightened if that like, because I'd been exposed to that before. I think. Uh-huh. I think when babies are born at such an early gestation, so were twenty-one weeks, um, they it can be really frightening to look at them because they're so red, like their skin hasn't formed properly, and mm-hmm. um, and when you imagine your baby in your head, it's your giggling, fat, pink, rosy baby. So when it doesn't look like that, it can, yeah, it's like, I can see why people find pictures upsetting because obviously it's dead babies, but also they look not their best, (laughs) probably. Um, So I think definitely just being exposed to all of that. And also my mum was a midwife as well. Oh, really? Yeah, so she obviously has had lots of experience of things like that so yeah I think 
I think we we're just really fortunate that our family is so supportive and made it yeah. really easy for us. And how, how did you cope with going back to work? I actually went back to work really quickly after having them because I just couldn't be at home anymore. It felt like time stood still when I gave birth and everyone was moving on around us and I was just lost in this like horrible and I, I really like going to work and I like having my brain occupied. So mm. I went back to work, which I, <laughs> this is really silly, but I actually had retained placenta. Um, so at the birth, I delivered the placenta, but a small bit was left inside and we didn't realise for like five weeks. So when I went back to work seven weeks later, I still had retained placenta, but I just wanted to not be at home so I went back to work full time and um, just to get out of the house basically wow still bleeding then still bleeding yeah I had an ERPC to try and remove this bit of placenta which didn't work oh so I actually bled until 11 weeks after the birth so I went to work how many weeks is that four weeks a whole month with a retained placenta well a bit of retained placenta so that must have really helped your iron levels as well. Do you know, actually, my iron levels were fine by that point. Really? I, yeah, I, I eat quite a good diet. But, um, yeah, it just felt like the only thing that I could do to hold on to some sort of normality, I guess. Yeah. I just didn't want to be alone with my thoughts, basically. So if I went to work, I knew that I could focus all of my energy on something else. Again, I think anyone listening will think that's incredibly brave to go and look after pregnant women and newborn babies and just be able to do that and function. How did you feel at the end of the day? Um, I felt fine, I think. I, yeah, I just, I do really like being a midwife and I just really wanted to be me again. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. 100%. And so since, since um, you, you've had Cecil and Wilfred, have you had any more um, IVF attempts? Yeah, I've had five more. <laughs> um, so the first round, um, so I was desperate to do IVF straight away. If I could have done it the month after they were born, I would have. And only because you just get this absolute incredible urge to like fill the void not that I wanted another baby, I wanted those babies, but I just didn't, I just wanted there to be some happiness, even though I, it would be very complicated. Yes. <laughs> but obviously I couldn't because I had the retained placenta. And then um, I ended up having like, surgery to my cervix because actually we found out that it was, I had an incompetent cervix. Okay. And um, so I had a circlage put in, which again was like quite big surgery. So it was... Can you just explain that to people who wouldn't understand what incompetent cervix and cerclage means? So incompetent cervix is delightfully named when your cervix is essentially not strong enough. So that's the reason that I went into labour because um, my cervix wasn't strong enough to hold the babies in essentially. So a cerclage is a suture, like a stitch, um, and often they're put in during pregnancy, but I had a permanent stitch put in um, which is really high up. So it's at the bottom of the uterus rather than 
being in the cervix well it's like at the bit where the cervix and the uterus join and um, and I had it put in through my abdomen so I have a cesarean scar and um, where they cut through and it means that I can only have a cesarean now because that stitch doesn't come out it stays in there just so I felt I couldn't take the risk of having another really premature birth yeah. whether that's before or after viability like mm-hmm. I can't don't want to go through that I don't want any more babies to die so had that put in so that delayed doing IVF even more and then I threw myself into IVF the next second I could which was pretty much six to eight weeks after I'd had the surgery um, and that cycle was an absolute disaster from start to finish we only I only got one egg which was immature and didn't fertilize so we didn't even get to transfer and you you're now paying you're still paying for all of these yourself still, still paying um so after that we were really unhappy with how our clinic had handled the cycle basically they should have advised me to cancel it I only stimmed for like six or seven days um, so that egg was never going to be mature and they just took my money um, wow, and nice. did, did their collection when they should have really said actually this cycle needs to be cancelled so mm-hmm. we were so unhappy with how that went um, so we decided to swap clinics and so spent ages researching started on a new clinic started my medication to start some embryo banking um, and in the meantime actually we went to Greece to see if we wanted to do IVF there decided actually you wanted to stay in the UK um, so I was going to do some embryo banking which is where you do several cycles together without the transfer bit yep. so you're just collecting all the embryos so I started the medication for the first cycle and then coronavirus happened um, oh, and it was cancelled and and then as soon as the clinics opened yeah I started again and I did four rounds of IVF back to back without without a break um, which Everyone was like, how did you manage to do that? But honestly, I found it really straightforward. Uh, There was no chance of me being pregnant because I wasn't doing any transfers, so I didn't have to worry about that. I felt like I was actually making positive steps towards having a family. Like, it felt really positive. Um, So, yeah, that brings us up to date, really. Gosh, wow. And how many um, embryos have you got banked? We had, so we had one left over from our very first cycle um, and then we managed to get five. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, out of four other rounds. So, you know, our yield is not particularly high, but we got there. That's still incredible. And the plans for the future with the embryos? Yeah, hopefully transfers, but we'll see if we can do one before Christmas or we'll see what happens. Okay. And how was it with COVID? Because um, how did it feel when um, everything was shut down and all the clinics were, were, were closed? Oh, that, that was really devastating. Absolutely devastating. I think, I know that sounds really dramatic, but I feel like my AMH has got even worse since then. So it's, it dropped to really low and it felt like a race against time. And then all of a sudden I was told that we're stopping and we don't know when the clinics are going to open and I thought that that might be it I thought we might never be able to use my eggs because they might have got so bad in that time I know that's really dramatic but when you've been through so much you can only ever think about the worst outcomes mm-hmm. so in my head that was that was that really you know we were probably 
never going to be able to use our eggs. And obviously there's no guarantee that any of the embryos that we've got will work, but at least we've got a chance of trying. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And I wanted to ask you because um, initially you said about you'd only spoken to a few people that you were doing IVF um, and now obviously you're talking to me. Um, so that's going to be a few more people. Um, but you're incredibly active on social media, um, on Instagram. You've, you've got a huge community and you're very involved in the fertility community on Instagram. So can you talk to us about that? Why, why you're so heavily involved? So when I, before we started IVF, I when I back at the beginning when I said I thought I'd gone a bit insane I actually felt like I had lost kind of mental control over myself and I felt just so isolated like beyond belief I didn't know anyone else who was going through fertility issues and so and we'd had like a few pregnancy announcements and I just felt really like I needed to talk to other people who understood these complicated emotions because I didn't even know if what I was feeling was normal. Mm-hmm. You know, all these feelings of like, why, why is this happening to us? Why can't I get pregnant? Why is everyone else having a baby and I'm not? And so I just searched some hashtags on Instagram um, and saw that there was like a, a small community on Instagram. So I did set up um, my in my Instagram account and um, but at the time it was like anonymous and I think it was set to private actually and um, just because I wanted to connect with other women who could re- like who could help me mm-hmm. um, and then it just sort of grew from there really I did find it quite difficult to do Instagram when I was pregnant um, because I just had so many kind of complicated emotions around feeling and obviously my pregnancy wasn't very long but no. um you know, I was feeling so unwell, like with the morning sickness and really, I just didn't enjoy being pregnant at all, essentially. And when you've, you know, if for someone that's never been pregnant and they're desperate for a baby, that's actually a really hurtful thing to hear. I would have felt that myself if someone was like, I hate being pregnant and you're sat there like, I would give anything for that. And I would have given anything for that, but I still hated it because it was so awful. And I think that, we shouldn't feel guilty for feeling that like yeah this is something I think that crops up a lot as well with with babies after fertility treatment as well when you're finding things hard um my own daughter for example this morning was tantruming at 11 months and um, like wanting to run around the supermarket yet I, I feel sometimes like I can't complain because she's so wanted and we tried for so long to get her um but there's the pressure of um, well, you can't complain because you have her. And the same for the pregnancies that you, you can't feel, it doesn't matter that you've got morning sickness because, you know, you asked for it. You, you put yeah, yourself exactly. in this position. And, but I think with, you know, if we're going to be so open about, about fertility, then we have to be open about everything and, and, and that's okay. And I think, I think any woman should under, would, would understand eventually that, um, yes, okay, it may be hurtful initially, but they will understand where it's come from and, and that you're being truthful and honest and, and, and that's part of being you and, and being real and authentic. And I think if you're going to engage in a fertility community, people are going to have babies. You know, that is the goal, isn't it? Yeah. So I did find it hard to engage when I was pregnant and I didn't really post very much. And then after the twins died, um, 
I kind of obviously was exposed to the baby loss community on Instagram as well. So that all of that has just been so helpful. And I know that when I was back in 2017, feeling really low, wondering if I was the only person who's ever felt this way, I would have loved to have been able to speak to my future self, I guess, or like to other people who were feeling the same. Um, and also, I just feel like I've got nothing to be ashamed of. You know, I didn't bring this on myself. My so, gosh, you've got nothing to be ashamed of. No. No. So, like, what's the harm of saying my real lived experiences because other people are feeling it too? And even if you're not living it, actually just having awareness that other people go through really hard things, I think is important. Mm-hmm. Like, I think a lot of James and I, our friends and family, have really appreciated being able to hear what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And Cecily and Wilfred, how, um, can I ask how you marked their birthday or how you marked their birthday last year? Yeah, well, this year, we were, this, year. Yeah, this, this year. This year, um, sorry. So we had planned a birthday party for them with like all our friends and family. Um, and I really felt like it was something I could do as a mother, like do a really nice party. And I was going to do this like big, like big spread of food and all of this. And um, then obviously we're in the middle of lockdown. So we couldn't do any of that. And actually in a way it was really nice because it was just James and I, and we made, James and I really love food and cooking. So we made. I have to say Sophie that um, I love your Instagram because you're always eating something really British. Like, (laughs) I always just like you eat like digestives or fish yeah. chips or a bacon sandwich, but like yes. I'm, I'm veggie, but even like you make me feel so nostalgic every time. Yeah, I love your page. There's always something like really British. I'm just having this. <laughs> had some, yeah. I mean, last night I think I had, had beans on toast for dinner with cheese. I'm like, oh, yes, yeah. I know, I know. I mean, we do, I do eat other foods as well, but mainly. <laughs> Um, so we made like an afternoon tea um, from scratch. You know, we love cooking so, and and really kindly as well. Like everyone sent us cards and yeah, we had, there was such a big outpouring of love and it actually felt really nice it being just the two of us. Even though it wasn't what we wanted initially, we had wanted like a party for them and mm-hmm. um, we did have a really, really special day and we read all of our cards and everyone on Instagram did like a teddy bear's picnic. So I had hundreds and hundreds of photos um, on Instagram and it was just a really, really lovely day, even though it wasn't obviously with coronavirus, so many plans were um, turned on their head. But it, yeah, we had a really lovely, gentle day with like just the five of us, like me yeah. and James, Cecil Wilfred and our dog. So yeah. And do you think that's something you'll do in future years to come? I don't know if I feel like we could have a party next year. I don't know. It felt like it was like a first birthday party, I guess. I don't know. I think you just have to do whatever feels right. And some years you might really want to mark. I mean, we're always going to mark it. Like we're always going to do something. But I don't know if we'll do a party. I don't know. See how you feel. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for sharing your story. Um, you are brave and strong and courageous. And, um, and thank you for just sharing it all with us. 
Um, at the end of my podcast, I like to ask a few questions, if that's okay. Um, so my yeah. first one being, um, if you were to have coffee, or I've been corrected before, um, wine or G&T, with any woman, because um, <laughs> I'm a coffee lover, you see me sopping away while we're talking, <laughs> um, with any other woman, who, who would it be? Yeah, so that is a really good question. So Zoe um, texted me that question earlier, and I was like, oh my God, who do I choose? And the only person I could think of, and I don't know, maybe this is really big-headed, but I would love to have a conversation with my future self. That's who I would love to have a that cup of tea with. It's a great answer. Or even maybe my past self, like all three of us, <laughs> having a cup of tea. Because I would love to reassure my past self that even though it's really awful, like actually you'll get through it. And then obviously I'd love to speak to my future self because I just want to know whether I get a baby in the end. <laughs> I just think, I don't know, so if that was a really big headed answer, because I, that, that, that's who I would like to speak to. Like I'd have, like to have a coffee with my past self and my future self. I'd love to. Um, I'd love to be a fly on the wall on, <laughs> in that TV. <laughs> I'm very bossy, so I don't know how to. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a loud conversation. <laughs> yeah. And um, any, uh, if you like, life hacks you can give anyone else who's going through fertility or even baby loss. Um, so, life hack is probably the wrong word, but any anything that's really helped you cope with the last few years. Instagram massively helped me just talking to other women and feeling like my thoughts were valid. Um, but other things that I really love is I really, I do really love acupuncture um, or any sort of therapy that makes you feel good. Um, and then another thing that I found really helpful is gardening um, <laughs> because it's just really mindful. Like you have to really be in the moment. You can't be on your phone at the same time. And I guess like nurturing things like seedlings or whatever. And, and being outside is always so good for you. I know that's like quite a niche thing, gardening, but I love it. I absolutely love it. No, I understand. Um, I'm, my husband laughs at me. I'm a terrible gardener and I don't do it because... Um, I said I was going to do all the gardening and then it just got way too hot here and I didn't step outside the door because it gets to like 50 degrees. But I love weeding because um, it's a bit like, and sorry for people who are a bit squeamish, it's like squeezing a spot for me. It's that same feeling when you get a weed and you get it from the root and you get it all. I love it. It's like such a buzz. <laughs> yeah, that's very satisfying, definitely. <laughs> I say to James when I'm feeling, I, I go and do some rage gardening. Like when I'm full of rage, yeah. I just go and pull loads of stuff up because that feels really good that's great um, I think you can have all of the emotions in gardening like you can just really get angry and like <laughs> stuff and dig stuff or you can be really gentle and like planting things and watering things love it that's brilliant um thank you again it's been a real pleasure to speak to you um and how can people get in touch with you or follow you um so you can follow me on Instagram, which is the Infertile Midwife, or you can read my blog, which is also called the Infertile Midwife. Um, and yeah, always feel free to DM me. I'm always happy to chat about all things, whether that is beans on toast, gardening, facility, <laughs> or, uh, or baby loss as well. I, I love talking, so yeah. 
never be frightened to say hello. I've thought a lot about Sophie's mum, just donning her marigolds and joining in the cleaning with Sophie. I think a lot of people would have tried to tuck Sophie up in bed, make her rest and recover in the traditional sense. But as Sophie said, she couldn't be alone with her thoughts yet. It takes a special person to recognise this. You can't fix grief, loss or sadness. You can't take the pain away or speed up someone's journey. But what you can do is walk beside them, let them know you're there and they're not alone. Since recording this episode, Sophie has shared that she has had an unsuccessful round of IVF. I'm sure I speak for you all when I say how much love and strength I'm sending to her and James. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the series so far, please can I ask you to rate and subscribe. Have a great week and I'll be back next Thursday.